You are listening to Paths, a program by LGBT Tech. Paths works to create visibility of LGBTQ plus STEAM professionals and their experiences in order to build space for future generations of community members to pursue their passions in STEAM. My name is Kristen Kelly. This episode of Paths is brought to you by LGBT Tech. Today, we are joined by Kayla Singleton, a postdoctoral fellow at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, we're really excited to have you as part of the PADS program. Could you just introduce yourself for me, please, and just include your pronouns and also your profession? Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Dr. Kayla S. Singleton. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a Black Samoan queer neuroscientist uh, working at Emory University as a postdoctoral fellow. Excellent. Thank you. And Kayla, if you were to explain your profession to somebody who had never heard of it before, how would you explain it? Maybe you can talk a little bit about your day-to-day and the work that you do. Yeah, so I think I would explain being a postdoc as training to become a research mentor, so training to have my own lab and do my own line of research. Um, And so my day-to-day really looks like doing experiments, checking in with my current boss, my PI, uh, Victor Fondes, and then mentoring graduate students in the lab, so helping them design experiments um, and analyze data before we put all of that together to publish papers. So it's a lot of moving parts, but it's a lot of fun too. Yeah, thank you. And could you talk a little bit about where you grew up? Yeah, so I grew up in Grayson, Georgia, which is a suburb It's barely a suburb of Atlanta, Um, but it's one of those places that when people ask you where you're from, you just say Atlanta because it's the only city that they know. Um, But it was a super, super suburban town with like shopping malls and like upper middle class families, uh, kind of on the outskirts of being rural, but it was a pretty comfortable living. And where are you based now? Now I live in um, Smyrna, Georgia, which is another suburb of Atlanta, just in a different direction. And it's also probably upper middle class. Um, It's about 30 minutes from Emory University, where I work. And it's like in that metro Atlanta area. Have you spent your whole life in Atlanta? I spent most of my life in Atlanta. I went to college here. I went to Agnes Scott College. And then... For graduate school to earn my PhD, I decided to leave um, and attend Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and that was a bit of a, a like, reverse culture shock. I had always grown up in, like, really supportive and comforting communities in Georgia, probably because I lived here my whole life. Um, but when I went to D.C., I really had to, like, redefine myself or, or maybe not redefine myself, but like rediscover who I was. And if I liked the things I liked because they were always around or if I liked them because I actually did. So I went to grad school for six years, lived in DC um, and then came, decided to come back for, to Georgia to do my postdoc um, really because I miss my family and my friends. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned having a really supportive community in Georgia. Could you just talk a little bit more about what your community looked like growing up, whether that be family or any other community that you were surrounded by growing up? Yeah, so I, uh, Grayson is a predominantly white area for sure. I don't know if it's still that way now, but growing up, it was like predominantly white, upper class. Um, Everybody was straight. Um, There weren't a lot of queer people, if any. I think I knew of there were like three or four of us who were out in high school. I wasn't at the time. And 
even though it was like really homogenous and everybody looked the same, it was oddly very supportive. Like everyone, nobody had any issues that I know of or that I was friends with. Being out and being open, which I always thought was really great. And then when I went to college, I moved to Decatur, Georgia. I feel like I should have a map somewhere. Um, When I went to college, I moved to Decatur, Georgia, which is way more liberal and like quirky and filled with queer people. Um, Grayson wasn't really that way. It It was one of those towns where it was very much like you could count the number of queer people on your hand and everybody knew who they were. And so the environment was always really supporting, supportive. I always felt like everybody wanted me to like do my best and succeed. And then when I went to college in Decatur, I felt even more like open being myself um, and interacting with different people. And that's when the like number of black queer people I knew really expanded and grew. And then when I moved to DC, I kind of had to build that community all over again. And it was a little scary. Could you maybe just talk a little bit about that experience of having to reestablish that community in DC and maybe like why that felt scary? Yeah. Um, So when I started graduate school, I was fresh out of undergrad. So I was 22 years old. Um, And I, it was the first time I'd ever like moved away from home that I didn't live like 30 minutes from my dad specifically. Um, And so that safety net was kind of severed. And when I started graduate school, it felt a lot like back when I was in high school, because it was really homogenous. Most people were white. There were out queer people at Georgetown, like in my graduate program, which was part of the reason that I picked it to go there. But it's always a little nerve wracking having to come out again and again to people and try and like build that community. And so I think it honestly took me like two years before I really got connected with like the black queer and trans community in DC, um, as opposed to like the black queer community just at Georgetown. So it was really easy to fall into like a sort of collegiate idea of community, but I wanted to know more about like the culture and what was going on in terms of like events and people going out and art and festivals. And I think after my second year in grad school, I really started pushing myself to like be a little bit more social and build those networks and just meet people. But it was definitely, it was a strange time. I actually remember it. The reason it happened was because all of my roommates in college, they were all into intramural sports. So on Saturdays, like on the weekends, they would go like play soccer with their like soccer friends. And I'm not a sports person. Um, and I was like, I'm going to start doing things that I like to do on Saturdays. Like, how can I find that? And so I used like Instagram and Facebook to like find different events that were going on or art collectives and things like that. And that's how I made a lot of uh, my friends, my like non-graduate school friends. I think you touched on something that's a really kind of important experience or part of the queer experience is that having to come out over and over and over again. It's like, maybe you don't have to come out just once in your life, you know, um, you constantly having to come out. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that and maybe a little bit about at what point in your life you kind of started to understand your queerness and yourself as part of the LGBTQ plus community and what that process was like for you? Yeah, I think I came out when I was a freshman in college or first year in college. Um, I went to Agnes Scott College, which is in a private all-women's liberal arts college. And I had come out previously to like my friends in high school, but it wasn't like a big deal. I know we were all like at a football game. And I think I told them and they were like, okay, that's fine. And then we like went back to watching a football game. Um, But I came up to my parents and my mom originally like did not take it well at all. She was like really upset. And I don't even think 
she wasn't initially upset like when I initially told her she was fine and then I guess she like thought about it for a few hours and then she was like very upset and emotional and so that was really it was surprising to me because I have one of my aunts is gay my mom's sister is gay and so in my mind I was like she's definitely going to take this way better than my dad who grew up in this very like southern baptist middle of rural South Carolina life and it, it was really very much the opposite. So my mom and I actually got into like a really big fight and my parents were divorced. And so I, we got into a really big fight. I drove to my dad's house and I told him and he was like, well, yeah, Kayla, that makes so much sense. And I was just like, he really, and I think a way that only dads can do, he like took what I thought was going to be like a very emotionally turmoil, intense moment and like made a bunch of jokes. And was like, this is fine. Don't like, your mom will calm down. Like, don't worry about it. And that was really great. I like definitely needed that. And it was really great for me. And I think that experience coming out like at the very beginning of college and being at Agnes, which is such a like, it's such a a leftist, communist, like radical feminist, queer theory space was so comforting. And I felt so like, so supported but also so challenged um, in terms of like what I viewed as like what I viewed as like normal or what I would consider like appropriate or not. And it was such a great experience. Like my four years at Agnes, I think are some of the most like radical of my life. And they were so much fun because I got to do it in like, we call it like the Agnes bubble. It's like this really like niche environment where everybody is like, on the LGBTQ spectrum and everyone is constantly talking about like making the world better and like your community is better. And so it was a real shell shock to go from that to DC where I sort of had to reintroduce people to like my queerness specifically, and then try and find a community that was equally as like radical. I think that that's also just like a really important experience. You know, you hear about these kind of radical bubbles in like New York or the Bay Area, but you don't really get to hear about those like inclusive spaces in the South. And there's not a lot of representation of that, even though it definitely exists. So it's really important to hear about those very like queer inclusive kind of radical spaces that exist there. You mentioned that your aunt was is also queer and that your dad was really supportive in your process. Did you have any role models growing up, whether that's in the community or just generally? I think I always actually really struggled to find role models um, growing up, uh, like outside of my like family. Like my my Nana is a really big role model of mine, really just because she's always been such a loving, compassionate like person in my life. But I think in terms of like like celebrities or like more famous people, or even like when I think about authors and when I learned so much about black queer writers like black female queer writers it wasn't until I was in college and so I spent I think the the predominance of my youth like trying to find a way to fit in or trying to like attach myself to Julia Roberts and like movie stars like that um even though we like didn't look alike and I I love Julia Roberts we have very little in common um as a person so I don't think it was until college that I really found myself wanting to be more like Maya Angelou or like Bell Hooks or Angela Davis and really getting in touch with that work. And I think it's kind of sad, honestly, because so much of that is because I wasn't exposed to any of that when I was in high school. And my mom 
my mom is Samoan and white and my dad is black. So I was raised by like a non-black woman. And so she also didn't have the like tools or the resources to like share those things with me. And so in the very beginning of college, I always felt really bad that I like didn't know who some of these like revolutionary leaders and people were. But I had a professor who who very much was like, it doesn't matter that you didn't know. Now you know, and you can like build your life around that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's also a really important point with everything, like everything politically that's going on right now in the country and all of the censorship that's happening around kind of uh, radical literature and queer literature and everything. I think that that's and just access to those resources, whether that be, you know, well within schools is really important, too, and how much that can really be impactful for for young people. Do you remember where your interest in in neuroscience started? Could you talk a little bit about uh, when you kind of recognized that you were interested in that and how, how you kind of got into that? Yeah, definitely. So I became interested in neuroscience in the seventh grade. We had this science outreach event um, that was hosted by the University of Georgia. And they basically came, it was like science night, and they came and we got to dissect all of these different animal brains, so like sheep brains and cow brains. Um, and I thought it was so cool. And it was the most, hand, it was definitely the most hands-on thing I'd ever done in school. And at the time, I was not like, a science kid. I did not, I, I didn't have like a rock collection. I didn't really like science. I always did really well in school, but I just liked reading and talking about books and listening to angsty music. And my parents had made it very clear that I had to go to college. And so once we had that outreach experience, I was like, oh, well, I could do this. Like this brain thing was really cool. I could like study this and learn this. And so at the ripe age of 12, I decided that I was going to study the brain, even though I didn't really know, like I didn't know it was neuroscience. And then in high school, I took some AP science classes, but I really didn't like them. They were so, I remember I signed up for AP biology and dropped it the next day. Um, I just hated that class, um, which I felt bad about because the teacher was really, really great. And so when it came time for my junior year, for me to like, apply to college. All of my teachers were like super surprised that I was still like I picked my college based off of programs that had a neuroscience major. And at the time, there weren't many colleges, especially in the South, that had neuroscience majors. And I was like, Nope, I'm only applying to these schools because they have this neuroscience major. And that's what I want to do. And all of my English professors who like wrote me letters of recommendation were like, why? <laughs> um, but that, that's pretty much how I did it. So I, I went to Agnes because of the neuroscience major and because of the financial aid and the small class sizes. And then while I was there, I earned a bunch of fellowships to do research in labs as an undergraduate student. I earned like two or three. And then by the end of college, one of my professors was like, you should go to grad school because you can like do this and like keep teaching. And I was like, you're right, I should. And here we are now. <laughs> and do you feel like kind of your passion for reading and literature and all of that and, and uh, writing and talking about those things, do you think that that has impacted your work in neuroscience or during your education? Do you feel like that played a role? Yeah, I definitely do. So I was a double major at Agnes. I was a neuroscience and classical history and culture major. So I learned my project focused on uh, Greek tragedy a lot. But one of the things that I learned from my love of books and reading and writing and stuff was storytelling. And for me, that's such a big part of science. Like how do you captivate, like I, I do like molecular and cellular neuroscience. So I'm talking about like really small molecules all of the time. Um, so how do you get someone that has like no idea 
how complex mitochondrion are engaged in that kind of story. And so I think it plays a really big role, just like the ability to tell a story, to talk uniquely, but interestingly about science in general, but also about your journeys. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's really important. So in choosing to go into neuroscience, what were you hoping to learn in that field? And what were your goals in terms of acquiring knowledge in neuroscience? Like what were you hoping to learn in that field? I think when I first got started in neuroscience, so when I did that science outreach um, program in seventh grade, it was really fascinating to me that like this blob blob brain situation is like what makes a person a person. And it would, it just like blew my mind. The idea that like every, everybody, I was 12. So like the idea that like everybody had a brain and everybody's brain was like similar enough to be like categorized, but different enough for people to be unique individuals that always really blew me away. And I think I, when I started studying, when I started like learning about the brain and learning about neuroscience in general, a lot of the answers that I originally was looking at were like psychology adjacent. Um, but I took an AP psych class in high school and I hated it. And so I was like, that's probably not it. I'm just going to like keep reading books. Um, and then as I started doing research in college, I found that I was really interested in like cells and cell types and this idea of like, how do you get mature, unique neurons throughout the brain and how do you study them and how do they turn out to be like complex organisms and people. And so being really fascinated, I think, with the process of growth and development has always served me really well as a scientist. Um, and I feel like most of my goals were shaped around that. Like I, I feel like I stuck with doing neuroscience as my major in undergrad because I was good at it. Like after a certain point, like after a certain point in time, it was like no return. Like I'd already declared a major and I can go back. But I also was good at it, and I kept finding interesting questions to ask about, like what makes a cortical neuron different from a heart. Uh, heart cell or even like a thalamic neuron. So now uh, in your postdoc, can you talk a little bit about what you're what you're working towards in that and what are some of your goals with your postdoc? Yeah. So my research in graduate school focused on understanding like the foundations of neural development. So in normal, like healthy states, how does the brain grow and how do we use different um, transcription factors or molecules across species to understand that process. Now my research focuses on neurodevelopmental disorders. So essentially using different animal models um, like fly, cell culture, and mice to investigate how the brain sort of adapts and grows in pathological conditions, whether that's a rare genetic disease like Minkie's disease or whether that's something as simple as like autism or like cognitive deficiencies and things like that. And so my work really focuses on understanding how the brain comes together so that we can better elucidate how it falls apart. And so to do that, I focus a lot on cellular processes now, um, as opposed to like specific cell types. So a big part of my work focuses on mitochondria and the many, many roles that they play within the cell and how different environmental toxins can very easily induce changes in neonatal brains, but also in like animal brains and how we can manipulate that to understand more about basic development. 
do you feel like as a younger person entering this field, did you feel that there was space for LGBTQ plus people? And if so, what did that look like? Or if not, how did you feel like that was lacking? I think when I originally started, because I was at Agnes, I definitely felt that way. Like all of my PIs or all of my like bosses that supervise my research um, in undergrad were women. Some of them were queer, but not all of them. So originally I felt like super comfortable and I was like, oh, this is like really normal. I actually remember going on graduate school interviews um, and the first one I went on was at Vanderbilt and there were like men there. And I was like, oh, that's so weird that you guys are here. And everybody was like, what do you mean? And I was like, we don't have that where I go. Like we don't have men really doing science. And so that was a, a really funny story. I got to tell my my mentor at the time. And then I think when I went to graduate school, I felt this overwhelming urge to like make myself a little bit smaller and not share as much about who I was so that I could fit in and kind of test the waters first. Like I was really intentional about picking a program that like had out students who felt supported and were like really comfortable, like bringing their partners to functions or like talking about their lives openly but I was just really nervous. And so when I was in graduate school, it took me a, it took me a while maybe to warm up to the idea of like being fully open. And I think at Georgetown, especially in the neuroscience program that I was in, there was definitely room and space for like LGBTQ plus people. But I remember when I would like go to conferences and things like that, I never really felt the same. Um, so I think like on a on a larger scale, probably no, but on a smaller scale, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And what about where you're at now and where you've been the past few years? How would you describe your experience as a, as a queer person in those spaces? Yeah, I think because I'm back in Atlanta where my, my friends are, being out in queer is like really great. I think one of the the biggest disservices people do to the South is sort of like make they market as this place of just like hillbillies and rednecks and people who are like so racist and so so close-minded and conservative and I feel like people really forget that like all of our civil rights leaders and so many of our black queer feminist leaders are from the south like the south birthed those people and built within them that sort of power and charge for change and so I think on a like a global scale being in Atlanta is great being at Emory has been weird, but I think that's really just because of the pandemic. Um, like the postdoc community is hard to get together. And I think the difference there is that when you start your postdoc, you're not starting in a cohort. Like you're, it's just you, you just have a job as opposed to when you start graduate school, you start with like nine other people who are like forced to be your friends because you're around each other all the time. But I do feel like the what is it, the postdoctoral office of education at Emory is trying really hard to build those sort of safe spaces and feelings of community. It's just kind of slow because of the pandemic. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, I think what you mentioned is really important. Also, it's like the South is, it's not homogenous. It's not a monolith. That's, there's a lot of people who live there and it's not, it's not okay to erase the identities of so many of those people who live there and are doing amazing things in the South. So I'm really glad that you that you talked about that. So based on your experience, I know you talked a little bit about this, but uh, I guess speaking more generally, have you felt comfortable being out in, in your workplaces and in your educational spaces? Is that something that you've generally felt comfortable with? Or um, I don't know if you have any stories or anything to share regarding that. 
now definitely so like now as a postdoc I definitely feel comfortable I feel like it's it's really empowering now like I feel really empowered and emboldened now to like be myself and to show other people who look like me or who were raised in the communities that I was raised in that like you can be yourself and thrive um, in science and in academia as a whole. I think in graduate school, it was after like that, probably like the first semester, um, I was really comfortable talking to people about being queer and being out. It was hard though. It was hard because it was that thing that like, I didn't have any queer friends yet. So it was just me talking to straight people about being queer and feeling like I was under some sort of like microscope or like they just had a lot of questions. And I was like, I'm just trying to tell you about this date I went on. Like it was a little strange. Um, But in college, I definitely felt like safe and comfortable being out. So I feel like throughout my life, it's been an evolution. um, And it's something that's really important to me now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that representation is is crucial. Um, And based on your experiences, do you feel like there are barriers for access into STEAM fields for for marginalized communities and marginalized folks in general? Um, And what do those barriers look like, if so? I definitely think that there are. And I feel like it makes a lot of like faculty or deans, like people in positions of power, um, kind of uncomfortable. I think one of the biggest barriers is just inclusivity of a city. So when I was when I was like on the postdoc market, like trying to find out which lab I was going to join, there was this really cool lab in Arkansas um, at the University of Arkansas that I was like, oh, this would be like the research was really cool. The people were really nice. And I didn't reach out for like a formal interview. I was just like sleuthing, stalking them on the internet. But I really had to evaluate for myself, like, do I want to be a single black queer woman living in Arkansas? And so I think for a lot of people, they like, you have to realize that like the city that uh, a marginalized or historically excluded person is living in is really important to their safety, not just like their well-being, like being around their culture and their community, but just their safety and their ability to exist, their access to healthcare. And I feel like people just forget that. I think in a similar note, another big struggle is I've seen a lot of dialogue or like discourse on people talking about why there aren't like older people in academia and in STEM who are out and queer. And I feel like that's always really frustrating to me because of like things like the AIDS epidemic that happened, where it's like we lost so many valuable people. Also, people used to be like mercilessly attacked for being gay. So of course, some people just aren't comfortable in those spaces. And I feel like a lot of the times institutions try to like fill this quota without really changing anything, without changing their environments or the people that are in them. And I can understand that on some level, but I think truly like the access to inclusive communities, safe living, like healthcare that is affirming are some of the biggest barriers that we still face like in academia and in science, but also like in general as a nation. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, I love that perspective of not just focusing on like one individual company or and what they can do, but like the larger impact of, of how, you know, how somebody's kind of work impacts their all, all aspects of their lives and the kind of larger situation around that. 
I think that's really important. And also how it's not just, you know, it's, it's important to have that representation present, but in order to not be tokenizing uh, marginalized folks within those spaces of like actually creating cultures that you're guaranteeing safety and, and just like basic comfort and empowerments um, and like really valuing those people. So do you feel that as, as a queer person and as, you know, any, you can talk about any aspect of your identity, but do you feel that you've been valued in STEAM spaces for who you are? I think, I feel like now post 2020, like with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, and Mahad Aubrey, like after that sort of, that civil unrest that led to these big Black Lives Matter movements, um, I definitely feel more valued in the spaces that I'm in. But I will say prior to that, I didn't feel undervalued. I just like didn't think anybody really cared. <laughs> um, not in a bad way, just in like a, an indifferent, apathetic way. And I was really on some level of the belief that like people just cared about my science. Like they didn't perceive me as a person, which I do think is kind of true. But I feel like now, especially in the lab that I'm in, in the department I'm in at Emory, I feel really valued and appreciated. Like, like we as a department and we as a lab, like, have had many like diversity meetings. We've had many like diversity statement workshops. We've talked about a lot of the problems that are structural within our institution and what we can do in our sort of like smaller communities to combat those issues. I feel really empowered and supported by all of my like. Uh, the students that I teach and like the people that I mentor and I feel like that is always really great but there are days where it's like really hard it's like hard to be to feel like you're constantly in the spotlight in a way that's like you can't have like a bad day (laughs) or you you can have a bad day but you can't like talk about having a bad day otherwise people just sort of like blow up your words Um, and I feel like that can be really hard yeah absolutely it's like you kind of have to just behave and be like the model minority kind of trope in order for people to to listen and be comfortable with it, which can is really hard and not fair. So could you talk a little bit about, um, in your opinion, why do you think it's important for, for LGBTQ plus people and, and marginalized people to be involved in STEAM spaces? So not just, not just, uh, you know, people following their passions and things like kind of pay equity and things like that. But what do you feel like um, marginalized folks bring to those fields that is really important? Yeah, I feel like on like a very basic level, they just bring diversity of perspective. Um, So much of the research that I'm interested in and the research that I do is focused on the idea that like the brain functions and develops around the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion from like cellular resources to different neuronal cell types. Like you can see the foundations of that within the work that we do. And so I feel like having that kind of representation, like having queer representation and and representation of like black and Latinx people, it, it one allows them to like, do the research that they're passionate about in terms of like serving their communities, right? Like so many of the like fantastic black scholars that I know do work that's directly proportional and affects the black community, whether that's like breast cancer research and screening, whether that's looking at the differences in how neurological diseases propagate across race, or even I have a really cool friend at 
UC Irvine and UC Santa Barbara. Um, And she does research on how birth control affects female development, which is wild to me because I thought we just like knew that, but apparently we don't. We have like no idea. And so I think uniqueness in a person is reflected in the type of science that they want to do, but also the types of questions that they ask and the way that they approach research. And I also feel like representation also just gives other people so much hope, right? Like there's that really great, uh, I can't remember her name. She was a Spelman president, um, but she has this really great quote that's like, you can't be what you can't see. And I think that that's really true. It's so much harder to like see your goals as attainable and achievable if you don't have someone who can empathize and understand sort of the minutia struggle that you're going through. And so for me, representation is really great because I've never had a black teacher ever. And I've been in school since like the 22nd grade. And that's just ridiculous. Um, but I feel like in those moments, it's it's so empowering to like have someone there who looks like you doing the things that you want to do. So earlier you were talking about how a lot of brain development is directly affected by, by diversity and inclusion. Um, and if, if you found anything in your work that's been for you that's been by, by your position asking that question as a black woman or um, just in general if you have any breakthroughs in your work regarding that? I think the answer is yes, um, but maybe on... I can definitely give like a philosophical, like on a philosophical scale for sure. And then I think in a practical science way also. In a philosophical way, I feel like the the connection that I make and that I have a lot with my students in terms of like teaching them or mentoring them is about this idea that the development of a cell is really similar to the development of a scientist, where you start off in these periods of like proliferation um, or division, where you have like many, many ideas um, many, many cells needed to populate the brain. Over time, you like specify your interests. So you go into training of a certain thing or cells become specified for a specific region of the brain. And then eventually you have this like differentiation stage where you're like moving and trying to figure out where you belong and where you're supposed to be. And cells go through that extensively. And then eventually they maturate, like you mature and you figure out like who you are, what you like, what you don't. And this process is like slightly ongoing and can be influenced by like these internal factors. So like your identity and who you are, but also these external factors, like the decisions that you make, right? Like my decision to go to an all women's college for undergrad in an interdisciplinary program for graduate school in terms of a cell that would look like a cell's like DNA and genetic code are those intrinsic factors, but the extrinsic factors are the environment. So like, the like physical interaction it has with other cells um, and things like that. And so I think that metaphor for me, no straight white man could ever come up with that. I promise you, I, I made it up one day sitting at my kitchen counter trying to like come up with a personal statement for why I was so like interested in science. And it was because I really did resonate with the ways that cells grow with the sort of connections that they make. And I think that that is really similar to like the level of introspection that I have about my life. And a big part of the reason I have to have that level of introspection is because I am a Black queer woman. And every time I walk into a space, people perceive me in many different ways. I think on like a science level, there is a lot 
more that I'm like willing to give and willing to try as opposed to some of my other peers or a lot more that I'm willing to research. Like the, the prime example that I can think of is I, I chose to apply for this neural injury and plasticity training program at Georgetown. And my work has like, my graduate work has virtually nothing to do with neural plasticity or injury at all. It really was about like, how does a progenitor cell become a neuron? And there's not much repair in that process. But because of my like, I don't know, like the creativity that I had and the perspective on my project that I had that I cultivated with like my mentors and like some of my friends for sure. I was able to like spin my work in the findings that I had to be fitting for that grant because I could see the specific niche that they were missing. So I don't know. I feel like those might both be philosophical, but I do think on like this broad level, there's this innate amount of like self-reflection and self-awareness that all LGBT and queer people have because of the way that people perceive them and take them in, whether that be in an academic or a science and STEAM setting, or just like out in the wild at a grocery store, you're like cognizantly aware of who you are and what you bring to the table. Yeah, that's fantastic. I feel like even as somebody who has no science background at all, I feel like I I can like understand exactly how you're explaining that and I think that that's so important is like making these things like like you were talking about earlier making them interesting and accessible for for everybody to understand these concepts but especially especially people who are interested in that based on your experiences how do you imagine that true equity and inclusion in steam would look what would a world that had that that where we reached that goal what would that look like I think about this a lot because I'm an abolitionist and so it's hard for me sometimes to imagine like the reworking and restructuring of academia to make that possible. There are days where I very much am like, yeah, we can like workshop our way out of this. And then there are other days where I'm like, we should just start all over. Um, But I think for me, a really big step in that process is like putting black, indigenous, queer, non-binary and trans people in positions of power and then giving them power, allowing them access to like the tools, the team and sort of the resources that they need to rebuild and remake this sort of academic structure and this STEAM structure. I feel like so much of what happens in like the science, math, technology space and engineering too is like so much of that is, is like work over person. It's like, it's like grinding all of the time, like hustling to like meet projects and end goals. And I feel like by having, by having that level of diversity, but also compassion and unique perspective in those positions of power, it can really redistribute the way that we think about our lives. And I've seen that even through just my own personal experiences, like rereading works by others like Bell Hooks and Maya Angelou and trying to live my life in a way that's like affirming. But I think in terms of what we view success as in these spaces, it really has to change and it can't change without those sort of leadership positions. And I feel like people try to do that a lot with like diversity committees or like LGBT specific committees, but those people don't really, they're always like sort of locked in this stalemate where they don't have the power or the resources or even the support to to make big changes. And so I feel like a lot of it is 
giving them access to that power, allowing them to use it, and then also compensating them for like all of the greatness that will come from that. What parts of your career are you most proud of? I think finishing my PhD is something that I'm like incredibly proud of. There were definitely moments when I just wanted to quit um, where it was just incredibly hard on like a personal level. It felt like I wasn't, wasn't progressing, like nothing, nothing good was happening. And I didn't have like a super supportive mentor team the whole time during my PhD. So like just making it through that experience was really like empowering to me. I think I also feel really proud of all of the the accomplishments I, I've had thus far, like in the past two years as a postdoc. I I definitely thought when I left graduate school and started my postdoc that I would just be like a regular, regular person. Like nobody would like know who I was. Um, and that's not true. And that's been really weird, um, but also really like empowering and nice. I know that in your work, you have some really, I think, important philosophies that you have that you kind of talk about in your work. Would you feel comfortable kind of talking a little bit about that and sharing some of those? Yeah. Um, So I think I have on my website, I have like my mentoring philosophy, which really centers around the idea of one, like meeting your students where they are in terms of their goals um, and this idea that like mentorship is not one size fits all. I also have this bigger philosophy that like your mentor, you should be looking for like the Beyonce of your chosen field in terms of mentorship. And I think that's one of my favorites because I think it's the most like recognizable and understandable. So in my mind, the beauty of Beyonce is that she allows you, she is like, intentionally permissive with like how exceptional she is so like when I watch Beyonce documentary or movie I don't want to be her I just want to like be the best version of myself because she and I have the same hours in a day but very different resources so I couldn't be her even if I wanted to but what I can do is like give it my all and when you look for mentors I think that that's what you want you want someone who is going to challenge you to be your best self and put your best foot forward as often as you can And I feel like in mentoring relationships, a lot of the times that can be like kind of one-sided. And so now like the joke in our lab is that Victor RPI is like the Beyonce of cell biology because I joined the lab. But I think that that in terms of a mentoring strategy has really worked for me in a philosophy because I feel like it, it, I should also say, it can be someone that's not Beyonce. I've had someone ask this before. Like it could be whoever your personal like person is. But I think that it's important to give students that sort of like autonomy to like want to show up and do great to like push you as a mentor to like work better on your communication skills and things like that. I feel like another big philosophy of mine is this idea of, of teaching and working with students on, I guess it's not really, it's not just teaching to me, but it's the idea of just like working with students to help them get what they need as opposed to just like constantly giving them new information and sort of testing them on this redundancy. I think one of the coolest things that ever happened to me as an undergrad was we I had a class where our final project was basically like, you can do whatever you want. You just have to like explain this like cellular process to me and the best way that you can. And so like some people in our class like made a playlist, other people like 
drew stuff. One girl did like an interpretive dance, which was super cool. But a lot of it for me is like meeting students where they are and then adjusting my teaching style to help best serve them. And I think a lot of my philosophies, I think, work well in like small classrooms, right? Because Agnes was a really small educational space in the classes I taught at Georgetown were also pretty small. But I think that there is something to be said about making science captivating for everybody, about encouraging them to like bring themselves and their ideas to the table and working with them to be like, okay, so if you don't understand like this process and development, how else can I explain it to you? How can I make it more relatable? What are your future career and personal goals? Um, you can talk about the near future or the, the long-term goals. I think this is a great question. Um, I don't really have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I've been focusing really hard these past two years in my postdoc on just being happy and content with where I am. I feel like I, I don't even feel like I have worked really hard to get to the place that I'm at. And it's been a time of like, I never thought that I would be here or get here. And so I'm trying to savor like what this feeling is and trying to recognize what parts of my, my job as like a postdoc make me happy? Like, what do I want to keep doing? What do I not ever want to do again? And so I think for now, my biggest long-term career goal is to have my next job be as fulfilling as this current job. Um, I feel like most most postdocs that I know are really use it, use the training time as like a transient thing. So like you're training, like it, it's four years for a reason, you're training, you're leaving and you're going somewhere else. But I'm really happy in my lab and in my space and in my community. So I'm trying to like build together and piece together what kind of lab I want in the future if I want a lab. But I feel like I'm focusing less on like specific career things and more on just like how I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's an absolutely valid place for for goals to come from. No, I think that that's I think it's also important for a lot of people to hear that kind of embracing things and maybe not always uh, just pushing forward as defining like productivity and success is really important too, because yeah, I just, I think that that's, you know, not something that we have a lot of space for a lot of the time. So I really, I love that. I guess, generally speaking, how would you like to see the world look for LGBTQ plus people in the community? Um, if, if you could define that in some, in some way. Ooh, can I go back? I was going to say uh, one more thing after, and then I'll answer this question. Um, I think one of the important things about like defining success for yourself is like you you have to appreciate how much growth you've done. Like I I'm a planner. I've always been a planner, and so this is the first time in my life I don't have a plan. It's really weird. Um, but like when I was 12, I made that plan to go to college to study neuroscience. When I was in college, I made the plan to go to graduate school. When I was in graduate school, I was like, I'm going to do a postdoc so I can become a professor. And during every single one of those like planning periods, I I never really gave myself time to like ask if that's what I really wanted. Like I made the plan and I did it. And there are days where I think about my PhD journey and there are times where I'm like, I probably should have quit. Like it was pretty bad. I did. I was not having a good time, but I, I did want to say that I definitely agree. I think there's so much power in checking in with your goals and checking in with yourself and defining that idea of success just for you. Because at the end of the day, like you're the person that's going to be doing the job. And then can you repeat the question? Cause I forgot it after my tangent. What would you like to see the world look like for LGBTQ plus individuals and the community? 
I think, I mean, I would like to see it be affirming. I would like there to be access to like affirmative healthcare. I would like there to be more fiscal and emotional support for the community. I feel like one of the the biggest things that I always think about is youth, like like LGBT youth and the way that they grow up in this very divisive world and how I was like privileged and lucky enough to like not have that. And so for me, so much of it is like, I want them to have compassion. I want them to, I want, I want those kids and I want all like, like queer people and people on the LGBT spectrum to live full lives. I want them to experience joy and happiness relationships. I don't want them to constantly be worried about like just existing in spaces. Like I want them to be able to thrive in those spaces. And I feel like there are days where I'm like, we're taking like two steps forward and a hundred steps back all at the same time. And it can be really frustrating. Yeah, definitely. I think the past few weeks or months have felt a lot like that, but I think that that's really important. What advice would you give to your younger self? I think if I was talking to younger me, I would tell me to have some faith in myself. I would really emphasize to myself that I could do anything that I wanted to do. And so I should focus on finding what it is I want to do that. Like, I don't have to prove myself to anybody and that I'm worthy of, of like love and happiness and success just as I am. And what advice would you give to LGBTQ plus youth or just uh, individuals who are interested in getting into STEAM? Um, so people who are looking at careers in STEAM or looking at education in STEAM, what advice would you give? Yeah, I think I would tell them to go places where you're valued, where you feel supported. And I think so much of that is just like a vibe check. Like when you walk into a space, like how does it feel for you? to really look and build community for yourself um, and find it because it exists. And then I think I would also tell them to like keep going and like keep shaking the table and making noise about the things that you want and the things that you need. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's really, really important. Do you have any additional thoughts that you would like to add about, about your experience, about STEAM, about the community, anything? I think... I guess unrelated to anything. I think one of the the biggest things that that I've seen lately, especially with all of like the the political news and stuff, is this need for for like cis allies and like advocates just in general to support and speak up and and do more work for like their trans siblings and their trans peers and what they're going through. I think one of the easiest things I think it's incredibly easy as a like marginalized person or a person that holds many intersectional identities to think that you have it the worst or to forget to extend levels of compassion and like thought to other people and their struggle. And so I feel like that is so, it's so undervalued, especially in science, this idea of like compassion and empathy or like, talking about emotions or showing emotions like makes you weak and it takes away from your work and it's distracting but living in this sort of constant state of ambiguity and violence is incredibly distracting and so I think it's just important that everyone remember that and like sort of lead with 
compassion and kindness for people. To learn more about the PATHS program and how to get involved, visit our website at www.lgbttech.org paths.